Hello and welcome to another podcast episode with your host, Christy Scanlon. In this podcast, I speak to Albert Hopholm. Albert is a global recognized leader in the field of organizational development, leadership coaching, and personal growth. Albert is passionate about helping individuals and organizations reach their highest potential. He's been a feature on TEDx and other prestige platforms, and his work has been featured by many media outlets. In this episode, we talk about the importance of psychological development, dopamine drive to develop decision-making, and how to develop healthy habits in everyday life. Albert also opens up about his own personal journey and how it has shaped his approach to psychological well-being and everyday life in a consumerist world. We end by discussing the principles of mindfulness and empathy and how to use them in our own lives. Please follow the podcast for weekly episodes. You can give the podcast a five-star review if you enjoy this episode and more. Thank you for listening and enjoy this show. But welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Christy. How did you develop um, your passion for psychology? How did that come about? Yeah, I think it's been a process, really. You know, it's uh, like many things in life. It's something that uh, you get impacted by yourself, you know, have an experience. And for me, that was, uh, I believe, uh, a trauma of my mother leaving me uh, and uh, passing away when I was 14 really and I think that uh, put me in a sort of uh, existential or philosophical crisis quite early on you know I was only a late teenager and um, coming up to high school and becoming 17 18 I hadn't really been able to tackle the sort of imprint that that uh, experience left on me uh, with conventional western uh, methods in a sense you know I tried all the different methods therapy and so on and so I I think I got on a on a on a bit of a philosophical journey uh, in, in in a sense and I was exploring different ways of uh, approaching the mind different frameworks everything from you know Buddhism Christianity uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, after high school, when I was 19, 20, I left to travel to India, travel to Ghana, and I spent time at um, a couple of different meditation retreats and started to really um, study Buddhism and meditation. And so I think from that point, I went on a on a quite a long journey in a sense, but it's all stemmed from having you know a problem really in my own life that I had to solve so it was not in the beginning a, a intellectual endeavor but it was more other an experiential one did, did that influence come internally then rather than maybe obviously you mentioned um, your trauma but was it something that kind of fueled your internal um, development to kind of think about how to to work within this practice around mindset and, and psychology yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely agree to that. I think, you know, what what we are discussing and uh, about to discuss is very, uh, you know, uh, we need to to tread delicately here because wisdom or knowledge in this domain 
only is valuable to the degree it has the capacity to transform the human mind, right? Because we can do PhDs within, you know, I guess meditation or philosophy or psychology, but that's, you know, intellectual masturbation in a sense. But to the capacity that that information is able to transform us in a sense, you know, to heal trauma or to be able to become more present or perform better. I think the, I think uh, that is the approach we need to have it. So we need to explore it in that sense rather than being, you know, an exam that you do or an intellectual comp- concept, a math concept that you grasp. And so for me, I think um, I was, you, you know, very quite harsh when I was looking around and trying to really, really see what methods or what mindset or what teachings are able to actually help me you know not just to produce a dopaminergic you know uh, spike because it's interesting or fascinating but what is actually able to transform me so i think that's the approach that i've tried to have um, um ever since then because you know we we solutions are sold everywhere i mean whether it's uh, you know mcdonald's promising the, the, you that you will be full and happy or the, the therapy or the therapist or you know there's transactional elements in almost everything that we do and we are being constantly uh, you know uh, invaded and uh, fr- from external sort of entities in a sense whether it be a corporation or whether it be you know a uh, a movie that we're watching or something that's stimulating us in order to sell us a solution right the solution and I've always been quite intrigued and fascinated by, by what might actually help us, you know, and what is not being oversold. And for me, I was quite unable to find that uh, uh, back here in the conventional way and setting that we live. Um, but uh, rather than something more, I guess, uh, esoteric in a sense, but it really is not. And I'm sure we'll talk more about it, about, you know, meditation and being present in in the very moment and the transformational capacities that that method has you mentioned consumerism and the bombardment of like stimuli in terms of products to solve answers to our questions and improve in a certain way by taking this item or taking this substance how do we avoid that bombardment of of those factors if we are trying to develop our mindset and try and develop um, inner ways of, of becoming psychologically better and improved how do we how do we avoid the bombardment of capitalist consumerist goods that make us feel better for a short period but doesn't obviously impact the long term yeah yeah that's ten thousand dollar question right and a sort of pragmatic approach to it is to 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 define the problem space here really and to realize that just as you mentioned that you know we are what we eat is you know it's a sort of true statement but it's also true that the the information that you process is something that you become and you start adhering to and and so i think that the society that we have developed is, you know, absolutely fantastic and remarkable in so many different ways. But it is also true that um, the, I guess, the, the products and the capitalist society that the that the products that the capitalist society produce are absolutely 
tailored in order to grab and retain our attention. And that's what, you know, uh, I saw, you know, a quite interesting article a while back regarding, you know, Netflix and HBO in the streaming war that's going on. And, you know, Netflix is not competing against HBO or Amazon. They're competing with your family members, you know. They're competing with the time that you put for your daughter or your father or your sister or your spouse, in a sense. And so I think uh, having a lot of respect for how sophisticated these uh, the, the systems or, I guess, external entities are in actually hijacking our attention and our dopaminergic, you know, system is is a first way to do to to sort of define how problematic it can be because you know in a sense we we are intellectual creatures and we have the capacity to choose and we have the capacity to really navigate through this but if we cannot see um our situation for what it is then 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 it's quite hard you know if we con- if we keep on denying it in a sense um, so I guess that's the first way to really define that problem space and to realize that it is a problem that, you know, the, the hundreds and hundreds of hours that we put into, I guess, mindless consumption in a sense, whether it be, you know, via food or via, you know, pornography or via alcohol or other stimuli. Um, and I think think also in the recent years, I've become a bit more nuanced. You know, I'm not anti capitalism I'm not anti-hedonism I'm not anti you know living a fulfilled life but you what I think we want to do is to take charge of our own narrative within society and what we do within society rather than falling prey for every kind of commercial or every kind of advertisement or every kind of promise of a solution that we get to ourselves. And so I think there are quite a few methods that really help us, you know, get a bit of distance and be more selective in what um, hedonic, uh, you know, endeavors we, we go into, right? And I think that I would say one of them really is meditation to be able to develop a mindful presence. And meditation, you know, in the way that I look at it is is simply being you know, in the moment that has been said a thousand times before. But an example of that is, you know, imagine that you watch a, 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 a fantastic movie. You go to the cinema and you sit on the movie, you put up the popcorn and you have your Coke or whatever. And you have two and a half hours of absolute complete presence within the movie. You know, you can actually sense afterwards that you've been free of your thoughts I mean the narrative that is constantly going on the the little monkey that we have inside us has actually been silent for a while and so in a sense that is complete mindfulness but what we would like to do is we would like to swap out the meditation object from a very stimulating one such as Avengers or whatever it might be to something that's not stimulating you so much such as your breath or the feeling of your body, or the feeling of the fingers, or perhaps, you know, what the sun is looking outside. So to be able to get your focus and attention to absorb itself into a non-stimulating object, that is really what we want to achieve with mindfulness. And 
there is you know the quite esoteric sitting meditation that one can do with buddhist monks across the globe but there is also something that i think is you know very very much more um available in the society that we live in and for me one of those is working out to be on a treadmill with airpods or you know earphones in with no sound and nothing in front of me and then just focusing on the breath to make that a meditation practice because then you sort of inject endorphins into the moment which makes it easier to become more present because sitting meditation can be quite frustrating I think also practices such as actually developing an enjoyment for reading is quite efficient as well. And I mean offline reading in a physical book. So so we're trying to what we're trying to do here is to develop a focus into non-stimulating objects again. So it can be workouts, it can be reading books. It can also be things like sex or taking a walk. And I think once one has understood the concept of what it actually means to be present, then one can tailor different methods to become and develop a relationship to becoming closer and closer to it at all times. You me- you mentioned at the start around Western society and how um, you've had to maybe think about Eastern philosophies and you mentioned your trip to India and Buddhism. Why why is that limited in Western societies? Why do you think that's a problem? Oh, inter- super interesting question. And I think I'm not completely fair to Western society in a sense because, you know, West Eastern uh, philosophies or mindsets has definitely started to penetrate, you know, Western society a lot. And I think uh, it started back in the 20s really with Alan Watts coming and explaining the Eastern traditions with a more Western intellectual mindset. But I think that, you know, we are completely dedicated and one could say a bit obsessed to productivity and to be able to constantly produce and grow in that sense. I think every human being needs growth, but that can be within different vectors, within different dimensions. And for for some reason, the Western society has said that we will dedicate ourselves to materialistic productivity. And that's how we define our success. That is how we define societal success and individual. And I think that, you know, that hunt has lots and lots of benefits. I mean, look at how far we come within, you know, fields, say, as as medicine or technology or, you know, air, the aerospace industry. I mean, it's super, it's it's just a miracle, absolutely. But there's also something, I believe, that that got lost, right? You know, in school, we didn't, we're not quite taught how to deal with emotion. We're not quite taught how to, um, you know, live honest lives. We're not, you know, we... We're, we we have outsourced, you know, the, the the sort of moral landscape and how to navigate it uh, to something else that's not institutionalized. And I mean, we did have Christianity for a long, long time, but we kind of had abandoned that as well, you know, you know, in a big sense. And the Eastern more uh, way of doing things, I think, puts a um, puts a price on that and and are able to say that okay the most important perhaps thing that we do 
is presence in a, and i mean of course it's not true everywhere and i'm i'm you know very much putting everything on you know uh, across one border here but you know if you go to asia and if you go to india um hinduism and buddhism and and islam these are you know in a in a sense more spiritual ways of living and then you can have lots of arguments uh, whether that's good or not but i think what it has produced is you know a, mo- a higher respect for the way the quality in which we are doing things rather than the output of it i think i think it's interesting we we spoke off air around you mentioned the fasting video that i, I produced a, a couple of months back mm-hmm. um if you consider the the religious perspectives on what you said if you if you think of eating and obviously in this case mindfulness mm-hmm. some of the teachings are so set in stone from from hundreds and hundreds of years but for some reason we tend to ignore them in the present day today i think it's just interesting how consumerism and capitalism has probably modified our thinking around that but in reality if we think about the human um, nature and and what we know in terms of education and religious teachings etc that it's set in stone for, for hundreds of years but we don't necessarily appreciate them as much as we should and you, you mentioned for christianity as well i think I feel like there's an alignment with religion within this, if that makes sense, and how that is sadly being watered today in in current society, and how that might actually impact this area is interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, I I absolutely agree, and you know, in a sense, you know, per- perhaps instead of religion, we should talk about something like, yeah, uh, um, yeah, I guess what framework of life or what principles we adhere to or what values that we actually live by and what actions, what values are guided by our actions. And, you know, in the hyper-capitalistic society, we sacrifice a lot of values in order to, you know, push, push, push and create this productivity that we have. And it's also, you know, if you go to Buddhism and look at, okay, what's the central thesis around Buddhism well they you know it is talked very centrally about the problem of attachment right that we we and we have anticipation for a certain reward to come and then we get that reward and then after the reward we get a you know lower baseline of you know in from the neurological sense the dopaminergic output and then there is anxiety to that cycle and then comes the craving again and so this is the really the addictive mindset and in some way we have you know institutionalized and put a religion around driving this cyclical behavior harder and harder and it's you know we we give uh, you know our kids sugar as a reward for when they are having their birthdays and we live you know within the corporate lifestyle constantly in the promise of a better future and you know that anticipation drives us forward so we're constantly living in you know anticipation in contrast to you know the, whatever the anticipation should lead to and so you know it's this constant cycle of that you know if i do this then the reward will come but the reward does come but then the cycle really restarts and i think you know having the addiction 
framework on uh, looking through society with the addict addiction framework is, is quite interesting because it really does map on into what we're doing. And it doesn't have to be, you know, narcotics or something that's lethal or deadly for you. It could be much more nuanced, you know, what information do we consume? You know, what routines do we have? Are we constantly engaged with the promise of a reward coming quite soon, whether it be, you know, breakfast coming or, you know, always we are, you know, always feeding and um, bowing in front of whatever next pleasure is going to come. And I think that cycle is something that we uh, have a lot to gain from t taking control over. And I mean, not in a fatanistic kind of sense that it should be completely remo removed. I mean, I enjoy, in, you know, hedonic uh, endeavors a lot, but I'm trying to be quite conscious about my intentions with it and um, make sure that I am the one in charge rather than the, uh, you know, never to be settled dopaminergic animal within me, you know. In terms of, in terms of you being self-aware then and, and recognizing those factors, how do you, how do you structure your routine? Is there anything that you kind of put into place that um, helps you in terms of those habits and behaviors and those small dopamine kicks that you might receive from Instagram or anything else? Uh, you mentioned narcotics. I know you don't do that, but <laughs> it's uh, again thinking about dopamine. You know, I think I think that's kind of a key catalyst here around. Um, you know, instant gratification, and is, is there anything that you do in terms of routine and structures that that could be shared with with viewers? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think uh, what I do are quite a few things, but I think one of the most uh, the, the probably most important thing is regarding in my intentions. And so let's explore this a bit. That you know, if if I go into you know, an hedonic activity and I do it with the right intentions or I understand that I do what intentions are behind it. I'm be trying to be honest with my intentions with it. Then I feel that I can, you know, have much more mastery of it and control it and be able to uh, do it at a healthy level. So tool number one is at the end of the day, I always write about my intentions with what I've been doing and I've been trying I try to identify have I been honest have I lied to anyone um have I felt sort of uh, you, you know frustration or uh, you know harmful towards somebody um and then I try to write down whatever I'm grateful for and so that is a routine for me to have my radar on to have my radar on to see have I done something that was not mindful or that was that I regret looking backwards to it. And so I try to make sure that I have a clean slate when I go to bed every day and also see whether I need to apologize to someone. And so that is a way for me to identify whether I've done something that's not completely aligned with what I want to do. And sometimes I do and it's completely fine. So it's more about the awareness of what I'm doing than actually what I am doing. So that's a sort of meta tool that I have. Every day at the end of the day, I try to write down my intention. Have I been honest? Do I need to apologize to anyone? 
do I sort of regret something and I'm who am I thankful to? Um, another thing that I always highly recommend is, uh, you know, download the Waking Up app. It's a meditation app by the neuroscientist Sam Harris, who has a podcast that we're all orbiting around in a sense. Um, and he has, you know, from daily meditations that are 10 minutes long and there's a 30-day beginner's guide program that makes it very tangible and very much um, non-esoteric in a sense. Mm. Yeah. But what advice would you give to to those that might be listening to this, Albert, and they might they might be going through the process of trying to awaken that inner self-awareness and they might consider you know meditation or they might have heard about you know practices that are important but they don't necessarily know how to take the steps to understand mindfulness and understand why they might get stressed or why why they might think in a certain way or they might have to change their identity and think about um, different avenues in terms of career pathways that might impact Mm. ego and all those factors as well is there anything that you might advise in terms of maybe those starting off within this kind of mind, mindfulness journey that uh, are relevant to kind of consider um, a, a, an early stage and how that might actually grow then within uh, constant practice and, and commitment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, first of all, congratulations are in order if you're on that place, you know, of having realized that there is something that needs to be changed and that meditation might be a method to approach that uh, you know there are different hurdles in order to get into this and the the the, the big ones in the beginning i think are that it's mumbo jumbo and doesn't work um it does it's completely scientifically proven and uh, you know vast transcends to the culture that we live in but i think being very very concrete about this one book I always recommend is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. It's, uh, it's a very, very sort of potent book that talks about what mindfulness is, how to identify what types of emotions you have, what you can do about them. It's very, very concrete in a sense without um, adding the perhaps at times unnecessarily unnecessary layers of religion or spirituality or anything else that might uh, get the ego in the way in the way from you know absorbing the insights so the power of now by Ekatolle, and then downloading the waking up app that we just talked about is quite powerful as well and then i think you know in everyday life being able to reconnect with your breath and try to focus on your breath during specific stressful moments so let's let's say that you bought the book, you started using the app, and then what we also want to do is go from theory to practice, right? We want to be able to make this knowledge, you know, in a sense, help us. And I think a good way to do that is to identify a stressful moment that you might have during the day. Perhaps you're, you know, get, um, driving your car to work or you're having a meeting with your boss or you're doing an exam or, or it's uh, before a big game that you're doing within, uh, within, within sports. Just try to do rela- uh, relaxing breaths in a sense that um, you do eight seconds of inhalation, 
and eight seconds of exhalation and then you do that eight times this is going to trigger something that's called a relaxation response and it's guaranteed to work i guarantee that you will feel calmer that you will be able to approach your problems in a better way and the outcome of whatever you're trying to achieve is going to be better so number one uh, get the book number two download uh, waking up app and number three try to do long breathing to induce the relaxation response what about removing triggers then albert i think i think some people and again speaking to people within the uk they might for example might want to cut down on alcohol consumption or they might want to cut down on um certain activities that you they might feel that's not relevant to them in terms of them going forward and they find themselves telling them there's they're going to stop themselves from doing that and they're going to maybe consider removing that habit but then they find themselves slipping into to bad habits and they might um, blame themselves but they might also be influenced by people around them or they might feel that they have these negative thoughts because they're in relationships with people because of the people around them how how do we maybe consider the, the, the trigger element of maybe considering um, negative thoughts and how do we kind of control that um, to improve our well-being? Yeah, yeah, very interesting question. And I think, uh, again, coming back to, you know, being very, very frank and honest about defining the problem space here. So identify, you know, just as a you know uh, an a, a an exercise that doesn't have to lead to a change because i think in that sense we can be even more honest to ourselves what are the triggers in your life is it alcohol is it when my spouse you know elicits a certain behavior is it when i get a certain type of feedback from my boss and just try to really identify you know what are my main triggers that you know, puts me off off the chart a little bit or try makes me not as balanced or in equanimity that I want. And, you know, what are the consequences of that? I think, you know, um, denial is a big thing here that you try to rationalize that, you know, I deserve to watch Netflix these many hours per day or I deserve to watch porn or I deserve to... Um, you know smoke or I deserve this or that and you know it might be true but let's put it to the test right let's 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 put it to the test and be very frank about what your behaviors are and what the consequences are of that because if it's true it can take the pressure so start out by mapping out what are my trigger points and what are the consequences of that because it's only when we identify the magnitude of the consequence that we can get proper motivation to change our behavior long term and so that would that will increase you know start uh, start the wagon in a sense and then i think you know ownership is something that's quite important to speak of here as well you know looking at you know if you have a detrimental relationship or if your boss is unhappy with you or if you're if the you know uh, the tax regulations are you know not uh, not something you want to adapt to take a look at what your ownership and what your relation uh, responsibility is here and so i guess this becomes a bit a bit holistic here but i think 
you know, def- number one, define the problem space, and number two, take ownership for what you can take ownership for and change your own behavior. And then whatever is left, I guess, if you are, you know, in relationships or have, you know, I guess a f- private friend circle that's not, you know, aiding you in a sense reaching out to other people you know Terence McKenna a psychedelic philosopher I followed for a long time said find the others you know find the others look at the others who are going the direction that you are because you know also an old truth is that you know I can define you from your five closest friends and you know that's very true and so then look at them as well and see whether they are actually being positive for you Um, so I guess there's a big battery of what it is that you can do and i think uh, it all starts off with defining the problem space be very very frank so go let's let's do a very concrete example here you are at at uni you love partying and you get to meet lots of different friends there it's actually a networking component to it but it's detrimental to your grades okay let's look at that okay how big and how strong is the networking effect here? What, how will that, where will that take you? Okay, and where will the good grades take you? Okay, and then we add on that it's detrimental to your health as well. And so you're not being able to, you know, do what you want to do in terms of, uh, you know, physical exercise or maintaining your routines. And then you can see that perhaps, oh, you, you chose you know, going to that party instead of going to your sister who just got dumped from her boyfriend because the party is more fun. And then we can start to see and add up the consequences of the partying. And be, be, being very frank about that, I think we can get some motivation to get to get out of that situation. And I think, you know, coming back to the tools that I use, the methodology that I do at the end of the day to really look at my intentions and to see what actions I did and if they help me towards my goal. You know, it's really all about eliminating or reducing our own bias towards hedonism, you know, and controlling it and enjoying it, enjoying it, but not letting it control us. So I, I went on, on on quite a few different vectors here, so I'm, I'm, and uh, I'm hoping it makes sense. But yeah. Absolutely. I think, I think just on your point around um, the, the five friends that you hang around with, uh, kind of a, a mirror of of your personality and who you are. I think some people find themselves being in this position where they might agree with that, but they feel that they can't be alone because if, for example, if they were to to maybe come out of that social group and find themselves being lonely and on their own all of a sudden, they find that a challenge. Yeah, and again, in terms of mental mindset practices of being alone with your thoughts or being alone with your feelings. I think some people, well, many people that I've come across, especially in sport, find that a challenge to actually consider their lonely, being alone with their thoughts. And you mentioned stimuli earlier on in the, in, in the, in the conversation, how the minute you kind of take elements away, it really opens up the mindset and the, the mindfulness of, of someone and the challenges that that person might have and they're using other factors to kind of cover the cracks if that makes sense mm, mm. yeah absolutely and i think you know um being afraid of being with one's own thoughts um re- is really an indication right that there is something there to be dug up there's something there to be dealt with 
And I think that escaping that those situations, you know, the anxiety that might confront you when you realize that you've done something or you've lied to someone or you've tried to manipulate their situation or you cheated in a situation, something that might trigger a certain thought pattern and a certain emotional pattern when you're alone is something to be to confront and you know what's so beautiful about it is that you know the, the human mind has a natural capacity to you know heal itself in a sense if provided the space to do it and it might be painful you know and it and it, it might be very very uncomfortable but I think that, you know, at the end of the day, what we have is ourselves and who you hang out with the most is your own mind, right? And so to really develop and nurture a relationship where you start to really, you know, appreciate uh, loneliness is a great indicator of health. And so you need to take responsibility of your own actions and you need to take responsibility of your own thoughts and your own emotions and to be able to confront them in an uncensored way and when you're able to do that then you really you know start to nurture something that we might call self-love or self-acceptance and i think it's quite hard to reach that state if you're in a lifestyle that is too stimulating or that you know negates con- contemplation or that you know makes it makes it so that you're unable to really really investigate yourself and i mean i have lots of respect for you know trauma obviously and you know like mental illness in a very you know a, a real and clinical sense and you know if these emotions are too unbearable you know taking help you know there is, you know, with with a therapist or with, um, you know, I guess certain medications or other methods is is super helpful. But you you really want to achieve the state where you're completely, you know, at ease with being with yourself at all times. Um, and I think a great way to, you know, diagnose yourself is, you know, how bad is your emotional or how good is your emotional reaction when you're completely alone. Um, but it's definitely something to aspire to. And I mean, in my sense, I'm in no way perfect at all. And I think it's it's quite important here to distinguish between, you know, outcomes and results and intentions and intentions and being aware of the faults I do, being aware of the routines that I fall off, being aware of, you know, when I lost my, you know, uh, got angry on someone around me rather than rationalizing why that I would, that was the right thing to do and so you know having a very you know you know kind sense and looking at oneself with compassion that makes it way way easier to also become more aware and then you know what you want to do is to start cycle upwards on that compassion awareness rather than going down into the more detrimental and uh, detrimental path but what are your thoughts on dopamine detoxing? You see, no, I mean, and, no. and the reason I ask that is no. it, it's becoming a kind of a trend on, on YouTube. You, you see a lot of YouTubers doing these dopamine detoxes for a certain period of time. And um, I'm not really sure on the, the, 
the the longevity of it. I, 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 and you know, that, that's that kind of a the reason why I ask is what what are your thoughts on on dopamine detoxing and and how does that how does that influence the brain? And then my, my, the second part to that question is do do we revert back to old habits the minute those factors come back into come back into our lifestyle? And I'm, I'm intrigued on on that and how that works and it and if it is effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, it's an interesting topic, definitely. So, first of all, I think I applaud the intention, you know, with dopamine detoxing, realizing that the stimuli has gone too far in a sense. And um, I think someone like uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman has tons of information on this on YouTube, would be super suitable to talk about this from a neurological point of view. But, it, you know, it is true that you can lower your dopamine or dopamine baseline and so that less stimulating things will feel more. So you reverse tolerance in a sense. And that's why, you know, with different stimuli, whether it be, you know, you know, uh, drugs or Netflix or porn or a uh, salary for that sense, you, you develop a tolerance to it. So you need more and more to get the same dopaminergic kick. And so I think that from my own experience, going to meditation retreats especially one that I found in in Koh Samui, Thailand very off grid, there was a 7 day medi silent meditation retreat and we got up at 4.30 in the morning I slept on a wooden pillow there was 8 hours of sitting meditation per day we had rice and vegetable soup twice a day it was you know very very non-stimulating but getting out of there and this also ties back to your question of whether habits kicks in again getting out of that place i feel that i had another chance to develop new routines there was sort of a clean slate in a sense and some of my routines when i got out of there uh, jumped just right back uh, but some of them i was actually able to uh, to alter in a much more easy way than uh, than if i would have done it at home and so i think that for me my experience of I don't know, there are a couple of different ways, I guess, to do dopamine detoxing. But if we would call meditation retreat a dopamine detox, it really did work. And it had, you know, I, I came in with the right intentions and was really, really a detox in that sense. Um, and I applaud the intentions, the neurology of it and the efficiency of it. I mean, it's a, it's it's it has the value of signaling to yourself that you want to make a change and uh, on a societal level as well or I mean TikTok or Snapchat or you know uh, social media if that can penetrate and become a trendy thing to dopamine detox it can also you know be the inception to many other ideas that actually work you know in a I guess more clinical sense. I don't, is there a parallel between mental health and social media and and again, I don't, know the, I don't know the statistics and data on this, and you'd be more of an expert than I am. But I'm sure to God, surely to God, that there is a parallel between the reasons why significant mental health issues are apparent in the, especially in the UK, and the rise of social media. There must be some alignment there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think it's proven that that you know social media usage is um, associated with a feeling of isolation, and I think specifically the fact that you're getting access to i mean a pool of a billion individuals and you only get exposed to the very top percentile of those within whatever um you know value or performance you uh, prefer and so 
you know, when I look into social media, I only see, you know, the best bodybuilders and the best NHL player, ice hockey players and, you know, um, the best of the best of the best. And I think that, you know, constant realization, not for the intellectual mind, but for, but for something deeper that you are uh, lower in the hierarchy, you know, however you want to define the hierarchy makes you inferior and makes you isolated in a sense. And so so I definitely think, you know, that, you know, the it's often said that the the dose is the, the volume of the dose is the po is the potion or is the you know, the toxic thing here. So, you know, a drug can be very, very uh, you know, benevolent and have a health effect on you at one dose and at another dose range it can be be fatal and you know I think it's the same with social media perhaps it's not fatal but overconsumption here is um, is really not a you know benevolent thing and that's been you know I think that scientific consensus that that's the case and so for me and also to be very concrete about methods you know erase the apps from your phone I don't have the Instagram app I don't have, you know, I don't use Snapchat or TikTok, but uh, I, I guess my uh, my uh, poisons would be, uh, I guess, Instagram, LinkedIn. Uh, perhaps I do a bit too much of Reddit, but what, what I do is that I, do, I don't have the app, but I use the uh, web browser, and that lowers the, you know, the speed, the user interface is not as nice, and so the deeper part of me doesn't want to return that to that place as fast. And there, and there is also, I think, something to be said here about, you know, instant gratification versus delayed gratification. I think if you are a human being with a lot of sense of purpose and a vision and you start and go along a trajectory towards realizing that vision, the instant gratification becomes less interesting for you because you are committed to the idea, whatever idea that might be. Maybe you want to get into Oxford, or maybe you want to be an, uh, you know, a professional elite athlete, or maybe you want to be the best parent that you can be for your children, or the best spouse, or whatever you aspire towards. If you have a clear vision, and if you are de dedicated to following whatever that trajectory might be, I really do believe that instant gratification sort of you know, falls out. And I think, you know, growing up now, you know, being, I guess, uh, you know, 15 years old or younger, it's a real challenge, right? Because, you know, we, you know, the big institutions and corporations and tech company, you can only imagine the volume of, you know, uh, neuroscientists and, you know, behavioral experts that constantly guide the coding in order to, you know, make the nuance of blue in such a way that it elicits a dopaminergic output so that you will actually push the button or make the vibration in a certain frequency or, you know, make the uh, the videos as poppy as possible, right? So, so it is a challenge definitely, but I think just starting off to, again, identify the problem space here is, is this big, big step in order to take charge of the narrative. And uh, also, you know, from that holistic point of view, 
I really do believe that having a clear vision of you want, what you want to do really does help you with um, not falling for the instant gratification that much. Yeah, I think I think on that, I think people might see this, and then we mentioned reflection and self awareness. I think people might and uh, utilize that, but there might be a fear of being different, or there might be, especially with social media, a fear of missing out on certain aspects what 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 advice would you give to to maybe someone listening or, or watching this podcast who might go okay like, i really do understand that i might need to maybe lower dopamine in in, in certain areas or consider my self-awareness or my outlook towards certain things but mm-hmm. i'd still have that kind of pull back and i don't know if it's a, ha- a habit format as well and, and culturally that kind of impacts maybe in, in a, an individual where there's that pull back to I don't want to be missing out on certain things or uh, this kind of negative you mentioned monkey mind then I think that that kind of kind of gets alerted within within those um those thinkings would what advice would you maybe give to someone around that and on 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 taking this step and and maybe considering a little bit more reflection a little bit self a little bit more self-awareness in terms of their mindfulness and their practices within that yeah, yeah. So let's let's distangle uh, uh, this a bit. So the first one, uh, very interesting question regarding, you know, being pulled back into a certain behavior because you identify with a social group that does it. You have a fear of missing out from some sort of community, some sort of sense of belonging. And then I think, you know, the easy answer, swap your peer group. You know, what is the value of your peer group in a sense? You know, love your family, but choose your friends. And what's the what's the values of your peer group when you try to discuss a moral dilemma or when you, uh, you know, rationalize a certain behavior, you know, try to identify what values does my five closest friends or colleagues or the corporation I'm working for, the institution I'm uh, associated to, what values do they really elicit? Because... As you say, we need to have a lot of respect for the part of our beings that wants to belong. But you can also belong to different peer groups. And so, you know, you can swap the value system and belong in another peer group. And when that goes too far, you know, you become part of a cult. But, you know, in a good, when it becomes a good thing, you can actually uh, utilize that fear of missing out but instead of fearing fear of missing out on the you know instant gratification sort of lifestyle that's Instagram Louis Vuitton bags uh, alcohol and you know whatever how you you want to define that I'm not having anything in principle against it but you know it can be come too much then you try to identify you do like Terence McKenna says you find the others and you see whatever other peer group there might be that is more aligned with the vision you have of your values and the vision you have of your life. Interesting. Um, Albert, I'm going to, um, <laughs> personal question for me, really, I'm going to Las Vegas at the end of April, which is everything that we've talked about today in terms of consumerism. Have you got any <laughs> consumerist world, lifestyle, um, extrinsic goods, alcohol, the lot, casinos, have you got any advice for me going there? <laughs> <laughs> I think enjoy it. You know, life is meant to be lived in a sense. And I think uh, the dose can be the poison. 
And, uh, you know, if you would find yourself moving to Vegas and, uh, you know, being part of the casino world, start to deal a bit of cocaine and, you know, doing that lifestyle, then, then you know, it's too much. But I've, I, I do not advocate, you know, um, a completely um, minimalistic lifestyle in that sense. And so I think, you know, it's something that you built up for. Perhaps you're doing it with a group of friends and uh, you know it's not going to be your life. Um, we're only young ones. And so, you know, seize the moment and enjoy that. See it for what it is. You know, you have the right intentions. The prob- Probably the most important aspect of it is um, the sense of belonging to create memories and experiences with your friends and see that that is your intention with it, really. And then you're going back to, you know, where, uh, whatever, not as, uh, I guess, um, dopaminergic lifestyle that you have. So, so nuances here. Yeah, 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 yeah. What I tend to do is I tend to either get my guests to be to look back or to look forward. But I think because of the nature of um, your practice, and um, I think there's a lot yet to be learned within this area. Where do you think the future of of understanding mindfulness and and um, developing well-being and psychology will be in the future? If you were to maybe push yourself. 34 years down the line and kind of reflect on on the nature of this area what what kind of the key what will so what will be the key points within that and is there anything that you you think that'd be worth sharing for listeners in terms of maybe this this area in uh in future practices and future yeah. moments yeah yeah let's do some speculations and some uh, looking into the crystal ball right i think um you know, I think I really do think that psychology is the most brave of all the scientific fields because it's the hardest. It's the hardest to measure. It's definitely the field where we know um, the least if you compare it to physics or chemistry or any other of the natural sciences. And so I think, you know, psychology going forward. I'd, uh, I'm, I'm seeing for myself a tipping point where it becomes uh, inescapably clear that the kind of lifestyle that the capitalistic consumerism society drives becomes completely unsustainable in a very acute sense. And so what I mean by that is that more and more individuals might fall off the wagon of completely... Uh, adhering or uh, you know bowing to the dopaminergic cycle that we talked about and then there is a there's a backlash happening from that and also a you know a an opposing force and i think it's it's uh, with societal development there is trends of course but there can also be trends going completely different directions and so as this sort of falling off the wagon trajectory happens, I think also the more conscious, um, sustainable way of you know living, living with ourselves and how we treat the planet is also happening in parallel, and you know sustainability becoming more and more of a trend. We're more you know vegetarianism is growing, meditation apps are exploding. You know, there's lots and lots of of hope and. You know, in 30, 40 years, I don't think that 
you know, we're going to either run into a dystopic or a utopic scenario. I think it's going to go in parallel and it's up to us individuals to choose what trajectory we want to go towards, right? And what trends we want to follow. Um, but, you know, I am super hopeful and I think in the field of psychology, I listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson the other day and, you know, that mental illness defined in the way that we clinically define it today so we have you know depression anxiety schizophrenia and a lot and a, you know battery of different disorders might be completely solved you know because the field of neuroscience is accelerating in such a such a pace and you know it might be that you know the the way of mindfulness will penetrate society to such a degree and sort of convince societies to such a degree that it becomes part of the um, the, the it, it becomes part of the system that we will live in how might that you know evolve you know maybe we have meditation in school like they do in Nepal and parts of India now maybe we start to raise our kids in a very very mindful way because we understand that the other way of doing it that today is sort of fine and a bit unsustainable becomes completely unsustainable because imagine a world where you know the big corporations that we um uh, we boost with our time let's say instagram imagine a world where instagram in 50 years has the same effect of cocaine or amphetamine you know might it happen? Well, probably not. But let's say it goes half the way or one fourth of the way, and it 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 hijacks our behavioral system so hard that it becomes completely unsustainable. And if that would happen, there has to be you know a big backlash. So I'm really speculating here. I'm super hopeful, and I think you know the world is so complex, and you know technology is advancing so fast that we can utilize it to you know either the dystopic or utopic scenario and it's up to you know you as an individual to choose what wagon you want to hop on in a sense oh but thank you for your time thanks a lot chrissy one last point if anyone's listening or watching now how can they find you yeah so so it's a great question i've been quite offline in the past couple of years but you know albert hobbom is my twitter it's my instagram it's my linkedin as well and um I'm also on YouTube, so you can look up Albert Hobbum there. Thank you again, Albert. Thank you.